I'm Abe, that's Daniel. And um, it is such an honor to have been asked by the good folks at the ART to take part in this. Because Daniel Alexander Jones is one of the most um, warm and innovative and groundbreaking and delightful artists I've ever had the privilege to work with. And um, it, it's, it's a family moment. So um, we were both around when each other was trying to figure out how to do this. So it's a privilege to get to, to ask you to speak to these good folks. Um, so you're here with the show Black Light, so maybe that's the best place to start. And um, do you want to say a little bit about um, Joe Mama, Black Light, and how this specific show uh, came about? Well, for, thank you for that beautiful uh, introduction. And also, welcome to everybody here. Thank you so much for taking time to come and be in conversation. And I know that we're going to welcome questions and thoughts from you after we've, you know, we'll talk for a mile. <laughs> so, you know, throw a shoe if you like. It's time to stop. But Jomama Jones <clears throat> is what I call her my performance alter ego. But she's not a character. And what do I mean by that? As a writer, I've written characters for years and years and years, and I, I love making different personas and and collaborating with amazing actors to develop uh, people. But I was working on my first full-length performance piece, and it was about my neighborhood. I grew up in Springfield, Mass, in Western Mass, and we had an amazing, tight-knit community in the late 70s, early 80s of, of t kids, teenagers, that we all kind of did stuff together. And our play was largely making routines. Anybody here make routines back in the day? You know, and you'd like, and then you try and charge adults for money to go get candy. You know, it was like a cottage industry. Um, but at the core of that was watching Soul Train on Saturday morning, and we would get the dances, and we would come out, and we would practice them, and put them together in little routines, and then we would get some paper and make a poster and be like, we're gonna have a show at three o'clock, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so in, the, in this piece, I wanted to remember that experience, but I didn't want to do a, an impersonation of one of the singers who might be on Soul Train, and Jamama appeared fully formed, Fully formed, fully formed, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I remember writing, and her name came, she just started speaking, and I started writing down what she said, and I was like, I'm not making this. It's more like I was tuning into a radio station and just downloading information. And so during that show, when she would come out, everybody would go, oh, oh what's this? You know, so it was like a, she was a showstopper, but also a show stealer. So I was like, I can't put her in my the shows, because she's going to get all the attention. Um, and what I noticed was there was some way in which she welcomed people to be comfortable, because she reminded people of those great divas of that era. So there's a little bit of, of Diana Ross and Dionne Warwick, and maybe a little bit of forebears like Lena Horne or Josephine Baker mixed in with her. Um, and, and who she is struck a nerve, and I think she was recognizable to black folk as a certain kind of grand persona, and I think she was recognizable to folks from different backgrounds who 
might have been exposed to that culture um, through their own thing, yeah. I'm, I think what you just brought up about what Joe Mama brought out in us was really interesting. Raise your hand if you've uh, been privileged enough to see Joe Mama perform before or not. Okay, so there are a few of you. So um, tell me if, if there's, just indicate if there's any truth to this and tell me if it resonates with you or not. That I was really touched by what you said about the, the neighborhood. And I wonder if Joe Mama doesn't bring us back to ourselves in the neighborhood, back to who we are um, as a fan, as a creator ourselves. We see something we love and we feel like, we can, I want to do that. I want to do that for the neighborhood. There's some way in which you bring out some, Joe Mama brings people back to themselves. I love that statement. And that, that's actually a real goal of mine. And being brought back to yourself doesn't mean to me that you're brought directly to the No, no, right. I'm just leaving them there. Okay. I don't need them. I need to. I can't see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, being brought back to yourself. I don't think it an overstatement to say that, especially at this time that we're living in in our country, we are constantly in a state of reaction. And a con uh, that state of reaction is different for each of us because we are each different. We enter it or we, uh, we address it from very particular perspectives in our identities or our histories. But there's this sense of you're like constantly dodging or, or reacting or responding to crises that are not of your making. In addition to those that are of your making, the normal things of connected, you know, the things that come up as, a, as the result of just being a person, being in family, being in community, being in relationship, being at your job, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I've seen is that the space that was part of that neighborhood, and again, I'm talking about a particular time, the 1970s and early 80s, before Reaganomics had done, done what it did, I'm talking about a particular time when there was this effort on the part of everyday working people to do the brick and mortar work of integration, right? Coming out of the civil rights movement. Where we were afforded, if you will, certain kind of space in neighborhoods to be able to meet each other and be like, how are you today? And you would say, you know, today is not a good day. And you'd ask somebody, you know, how are you feeling today? They say, I'm not so well. You say, well, I'm going to the grocery store. Can I get you something? That these tiny acts of connection, and I dare say generosity, that came from genuine human connection person to person, not under that kind of constant onslaught, right, made it possible for us to do the work of building community. And, and it's not lost on me that the assault of this constant tension, one of the first places to go is our softness in presence with strangers, our softness in presence with one another in community spaces. I know I walk around waiting for the other shoe to drop or waiting for the arrow that's gonna be coming toward me. And I know that that is, that is for depending on who you are and where you come from and how you walk in the world, something that can be far more intense than what I experience, right? So what I hope is that in the work, in Blacklight in particular, Jomama makes a space for 90 minutes 
where she invites us to do as the old, you know, song said, lay down your sword and shield down by the riverside for but a moment so that we can actually take a breath together. And this is not, a, not about all getting on the same page. It's not about, you know, we're going to, everything's going to be fine. Oh, not at all. But it's to say, guess what? Let's remember we're all human beings in this moment together. And let's see one another. What might be possible? You know, I dream of that sometimes. Like, could, I, could, oh, could we just could we just exhale for a moment? And 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 say, wow, what a fucked up mess we're in. With somebody that we don't know. This maybe not doesn't the same way that we do about it, but that's also going through it, you know? How can we listen and learn? So it's a lot about somehow she disarms, she disarms me when she comes through. I want to, something I asked you if it was okay to ask you about was, you know, I'm, a, I'm in love with you, but I'm also in love with your folks and your brother, um, and um, I, I was privileged enough to get to know them over the years of working with you, and um, it's emotional for me, but part of what the artists that we get access to here is because, you know, your parents raised you right, and your brother's kind of the proof of the pudding if, if we don't get enough from you. And I'm wondering, you know, you're from Massachusetts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, from Springfield. And you were talking about the neighborhood, and you're know, welcome home. Um, and you performed shows right here in this hall, at Hibernian Hall, everybody. Yes. And um, coming back to the state where you're from, and in this moment in your life, how can people who are raising kids now or um, grandkids now are supporting raising a family. How can we be there for each other? How do we can be, can we be there for young people so that they're not caught up in this chazerai, this stupid mess that is being presented to us as reality now? I've been working on a, a book uh, for the last few years. It's a kind of memoir that looks a lot at my relationship with my creative mentors and also looks at, at family and their impact. Um, and I, there's, a, there's one thing I want to bring up that's a, an historical note. So my parents met probably in 1966, and they got married in 1968. They got married in October of 1968. So they got married after, after King and Robert Kennedy were assassinated, and right before what would be the landslide where, where Nixon would be elected. And so what, I, what I'm aware of is I was born into a kind of grief. And it was a grief that they walked with because they saw, quite literally, you know, and I, I think we don't talk enough, we, in quotes, 
about one of my great mentors, Dr. Constance Berkeley, who is a, uh, no longer living. She used to say that the, the impact of those serial assassinations in the 1960s, starting probably with Patrice Lumumba, I'm going all the way through, and, and those well-known and those not so well-known. She said it had the effect of a nuclear explosion in our midst, and that the fallout from those was the equivalent of a kind of, it was a psychic trauma that distorted, like, like nuclear radiation would, would distort and, and deform DNA, right? So, why do I go there when you ask me this really sweet question about Massachusetts and families? I say because I think one of the things that fueled their raising of me, and one of the things that was definitely a part of the community in which I grew up, was an awareness of needing to pass on certain core values of community, of, of personal ethic, you couldn't rely on a government, you couldn't rely on somebody else to give it to you, you had to find it from within and, and teach it person to person. And that you had to be reliant on your fellow human beings, which was the inverse of the Reagan message, you know, of the me first generation of the materialism. And so part of what I think is, and again, I don't have children, I said to someone earlier, I was like, I have a lot of godchildren, so I can give them presents and go. But um, really, yeah. But um, part of it is not 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 to hide how deep the mess is, not to pretend that we're not in a mess, um, and to you know, I think there's a sense of trying to protect children, which I understand, but I also think. Children in, in my belief system are coming right from the ancestors. And they're coming with information, they're coming with mission, they're coming to the planet or through into life for a reason. It's not arbitrary. So you, we would do well to listen to them. And I'm, for example, so inspired by Greta Thunberg, who is the climate activist who's about to speak at the UN, right? And, you know, I have a lot of friends who are like, but, you know, I, I, a girl of that age should not be the person we, the government should be. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. But she's clear. <laughs> and she's much clearer. I don't know how many people saw that article that um, Jonathan Franzen wrote in the New Yorker about the climate, where he was basically like, we should just accept that it's done, accept that everything is horrible. You know, I mean, it is. But he was like, basically, like, there's nothing we can do. So we would do better to accept the end of things than to fight it. And I'm like, the 12-year-old has the information. <laughs> like, she is the one we need to be listening to. And so I think it's, I think what, what I, why I point to her and why I, this will be my conclusion is to say that if you, if you cherish what it means to hold a space that can include our grief as well as our hope, if you, if you, if you make the space for people to be able to process their fear and know that human beings have agency inside of that, that those assassinations happened, the movement was deliberately attacked, but then people kept going. People kept doing the work. People kept building. My father, uh, you know, 
we, we, we just had to clean out a lot of things from the house. And 75% of the, of the documents in my parents' house were related to work he did in the community. I, I want to go to this book that you mentioned. But first, I want to, this, what you're talking about, about the movement, that your folks came out of, and that, you know, I know how proud they are that you are such an active player in the movement today. And we are in an exciting moment, as well as a terrifying one, where in culturally and in the arts, people of color, especially black artists, trans artists, queer artists, women artists are stepping forward and stepping up and lifting each other up in ways that are new and exciting. And um, I wonder if you have anything to say about that and how you think that's happened. And you're a very big, important part of it. And who is this community of artists that are stepping up right now? And then I also uh, want to ask you another question about that. But go ahead, I'll just leave it to Theo. Yeah, I just think it's a very exciting time. And there, there are... Um, there are a number of playwrights, a number of theater makers who work, you know, in a maybe what we would call like a devised way. There are a number of companies, there are a number of performer, like myself, performers who make work writing and directing and making music and things like that. And what I love is it's kind of like there for, for most of the time that I was making work, so I started professionally probably at the early mid-90s, right? And it was like hitting brick wall, brick wall, brick wall, brick wall, because it, there just was no space for doing work the way that I was doing it, right? Let alone the fact that it was black, let alone the fact that it was queer, but like the fact that it wasn't going in a straight line, people like, oh, you know. And I was among a number of folks who were working in that way. And what I love about this generation is that instead of knocking themselves against the wall, they just walked away from the wall. You know, they, they're, not, they're, not, they're not concerned. And what was, what, and I ended up having to do that too, because I didn't want to, I wanted to keep my skull, you know? But what's beautiful about that is that it's very, it became very clear that the energy was with them. And so I've, I've seen so many of them, and I know one who's been uh, here a lot in Boston over the last year and a half or so, two years, Diana Oh, I don't know if anyone has seen or knows her work. Um, she, she's an, a, a wonderful example of that. Alicia Harris, who's gonna be here later in, in the year with her piece. Um, you know, I could, I could list a, a ton of them. Some more of Hinder Hughes, who pops up on here, who just, just started, uh, um, an amazing artist who's uh, uh, just starting the jazz program at uh, Harvard, um, and is gonna be bringing a lot more of his work here. That, that they just understand that it's as simple as saying, you know, like if we had more than 90 minutes together tonight, I'd be like, okay, so what, y'all, let's talk. What are we gonna do? What do y'all need? And you would say what the ideas are, what's, in, what's hot in the room, and they'd be like, okay, what are you good at? What are you good at? What are you good at? I'm really good at laying down these chords, and she's good at lighting design, and let's do a thing, and, and let's do a thing. And so by doing that, what I feel is I'm seeing in them, there's another, um, uh, 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 Erica Dickerson Dispenza, who uh, uh, is having her piece done, Colored Water at the Public Theater. Ebony Noel Golden, who's uh, an extraordinary artist in New York City, who just 
is doing these processionals. Isn't she the bomb? She's amazing, right? She's doing these processional performances. And so they're all, they're doing the work now that my mentors were doing. And, the, and there's this deep gratification of seeing the fact that they knew ahead of time, even if they may themselves may, may not have been able to break through that wall, they knew you just do it because that's where the good stuff is. And now the institutions are following after them to be like, well, hold up, you know? So let's go there with your mentors and with book, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you run from there. I'll just introduce it that way. Talk about what, what, what you're writing and how, I think the process of how you're writing the book is really interesting too. Yeah, so I've been, I've been, I just hired an independent editor before I tried to sell this thing. I handed her 396 pages, right, on, on the last day of last month. I was a year, you know, but, um, it started very simply. I've never published my play, my plays and performance pieces for theater, and a lot of friends were saying to me, "We need your, we need the stuff and the records so we can teach it." And people, you know, like it's going to go away. And I said, "Okay, okay." So I sat down to start doing that, and I realized when I set a few of them next to each other, none of they don't make any sense because they're all so different from one another. So I said, "Well, let me write a little contextual essay to start with to say like this." And as I started writing, I immediately had to talk mentors. And when I started to talk about my mentors, it turned into a talk about my artistic lineage and the ways that I make work that are not, you know, it's not original. I just do, a, I do my own spin on it, but it's actually a very long tradition. And then that little introductory essay exploded to about 35 pages, and I was like, oh, this is a book. So I put the plays away, this do not publish. And I wrote this book instead. And I'm going to say a couple of their names, one of whom is, has very deep roots in Boston from, teach, for, from teaching here for many years, Robbie McCauley. Um, some of you may know, know her and know her work. She's amazing. And uh, her best girlfriend, sister friend, uh, who's no longer living, Lori Carlos. And the two of them were both original cast members of The Color Girls Who Considered Suicide by Antisaki Shange. They both helped her, Shange, develop that piece. Um, and so that's kind of like, if you trace back the lineage, that's the node that you can go back to. So when I work, I am working with a lot of the techniques that they brought to me. And the, it wasn't that I studied with them in a school, it's that they took me under their wing. And that meant that I did laundry and folded Lori's towels. I cleaned the dishes. You sit down on the floor and you shut your mouth and you listen to the story for the third time about when she kicked Stanley Crouch's ass in New York City on the panel. And like, you know, that is that kind of thing. You know, it's a, like a richness of being. And it is through them that I learned the real history of the public theater and the real history of the politics of all of that work. Um, and then there are others, uh, Blanche Foreman, who was an amazing opera singer, black opera singer. Uh, uh, Dr. Constance Berkeley, whom I mentioned. Rebecca Rice, who was a gifted actor um, uh, who lived in Washington, D.C., uh, many of whom are no longer living, Kathy Gagnon, like I can name, name them. I, to all of them, let's just take a moment. Yeah. You said something that I want to uh, push back on a little. You said it wasn't original, which you were doing. It was because it was from 
ancestors which, and the mentors, which the second part of that, of course, rings totally true. In, in Daniel's work, you, um, you don't hide or mask, you actually do work to expose the references, expose who you're, who you're saluting in the work often. Um, but I think it's I think it's a mistake to I think it's a false dichotomy to say that's not original, you know, because they're gifting you with something and you're doing something fresh with it certainly, and I mean maybe it's humility, which is why I didn't recognize it. Um, but <laughs> you know, uh, maybe I can respond to that. Yeah, say, you know the, that it's like um, Betty Carter said this mm -hmm. thing one time that uh, I don't know how many know the great jazz singer and composer, uh, Betty Carter, and band leader, and she was a great teacher, and like anybody who's a young gun in jazz, she taught that, you know? Um, oh, I think I went okay, sorry. Uh, but basically, you know, what I mean by not original is it, it is a tradition. You know, you have to learn call and response, you have to learn listening, you have to learn to get your chops, you have to, you know, understand that, if, for example, in theater, I have, to, I have to open a ritual. I have to build the energy. I have to shift it at a certain point. Like, there's certain techniques. Yeah. And then, she said, but there's only one Sarah Vaughan. And you learn to sing by playing the record and trying to sing. You know, like, I played all my Diana Ross records and learned to sing. And then, at some point, you're like, oh, the, you don't want to be known as the one that's imitating Sarah Vaughan. You know, you gotta, you gotta get in there and put your own thing on it. And that, so that you, Learn by imitation or by, by taking on someone else's form. But then you go deeper. And then the, the charge is, but what are you going to do? And that's where I say I, yes. Right the hell. Right the hell on. I was sitting right there when you were performing up here as Jamama Jones, uh, what, three years ago? Four years like ago? Five. Five <laughs> years ago. Because time flies whether you're having fun or not. Um, but, and the guy next to me and his boyfriend turned to me at intermission and were like, she is so great. I can't believe I never heard of her back in the 70s. I'm trying to remember. I never, I never knew about Joe Mama back then. And, and I was like, you're gonna love the second act and, you know, and, and just keep thinking. You know, that happened in New York. We were doing a show, we were doing a series of shows at Symphony Space, and these two women came up afterward and they grabbed Joe Mama's arms and they were like, you know, like shaking, and they were like, they were like, we love Donna Summers, we love Diana Ross. How come we don't have your records? Like they were just like, they were so angry. They're like, where can we get them? Are they out of print? It was like such an intense thing. And have the heart. And here's what <laughs> I was like, this is no fun to spoil it, you know, it's like, it's no fun. But it raises this other thing, which is, you know, queer culture is, my queer hillbilly culture is home base for me, but queer culture, and I always feel like the most abused drag, the drag lip sync performance is the most abused art form. Because, you know, it's like, basically, what you said, it's like, you think you're saluting somebody, but the woman you're saluting, like, looks better than you. She knows the words to the song, you know, um, and she's actually singing, right? 
And I was thinking, like, so how is that a salute? You know, if, if, and something I love about Jomama is that you're, you've, you're saluting people by creating this other thing. Kudos. Like, that's, that, that was a revelation. It was beautiful when you, when you brought that up there. I think it's probably time for us to see. Yeah, we should. But can we show the one video? Oh, first? yeah. So I just want to that way, and then we'll shift into questions. Yeah. But I want to show. Uh, so we have a new album. Oh my god! I listened to it this morning. It's so incredible. It's so good. It's so good. I'm like, I am proud. I'm stoked about this one. Like, you know how so as an artist, sometimes you're like, mm -hmm, no, no, this is good. But. Um, but I want, to sh I, I want to show this video in particular. This is the first song we released, um, and we released it a while back, while, before we had finished mixing the record or anything, because it has my community in it. And I want to show you that because I think it's very important that one of, one of the things that I've, I've always done in my work is I walk with a group of people. I don't come in alone. And I think that's been another reason why it's been a little challenging for me in, in my career because I'm not, I'm not I don't, I, if you just bring me, it's not a thing. But this is a group of people, some of whom have worked on the show and come through and now are not working on it and gone on to their own things and others are just incredible um, longtime collaborators, including Rhonda Ross is in this, Issa Davis, um, uh, Tanisha Christie. So just, we'll take a look at this. I'm gonna grab some water and then we'll turn it over to your questions, okay? It's called See Things As They Are, and it's in our show, so you can see it live at ART.